Father, we come before you today with grateful hearts because of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. He is our champion. He is our King. He is our Lord. Oh, Father, we are such a blessed people to be given your word and your spirit and the promise of all that you, you have for us, the inheritance that's waiting for us. So, Father, we pray and ask you now to give us grace to rejoice as we open your word today. We're thankful for your word that teaches, rebukes, corrects, and trains us in righteousness. Father, we pray that your spirit would teach us. We pray for grace for the preacher and grace for the hearer. And Lord, we pray that we would grow in our faith and in our trust in you. And Father, that you would show us by our ancestor Jacob um, some lessons that we need to know. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm thinking of the story when King Hezekiah was over Judah. And in his 14th year, he had a situation that presented itself to him that was very frightening. The king of Assyria marched on all the fortified cities of Judah, took them captive, and surrounded Jerusalem. And then the spokesman for the king came before the walls of Jerusalem and called them out and asked them to surrender. And he said, there's no, all the other gods that we have captured, all the other peoples we've captured, their gods were not able to protect them. Why do you think that you can hold out against us? In other words, give up, we'll treat you well, and we're going to transplant you somewhere else on the planet. And Hezekiah earlier had already yielded to their demands for more gold and more silver. He'd actually stripped the gold off of the temple doors to be able to appease this enemy, Sennacherib. In Exodus, in Second um, Kings 19, we read the following in verse 14. So the first time Hezekiah appeased him, Let's look at Hezekiah's second approach. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands and wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us. Please from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Then the scripture records in verse 32. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return 
and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, there were dead bodies everywhere. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrok, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with a sword and escaped into the land of Arad. What do we do when we're faced with something, a trial that is frightening? What do we do when we face situations that cause us to be anxious and to be fearful? We see in this passage that God is faithful to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine. And we see the response of Hezekiah in this situation and what God did on behalf of his people. God works on behalf of his people. Today we're looking at Genesis 33 and Jacob meeting Esau. Now, I don't know if you've ever had somebody you didn't want to meet. Uh, have you ever had a situation like that? I know when I was in seventh grade, I had a, a seventh grade bully threaten to follow me home and beat me up. And he told me, unless I gave him money, he was going to beat me up. So I lived in fear all that day, waiting for him to go home. Well, he didn't. But then he told me the next day he would take care of me later. So I spent a year in middle school, looking out of the corner of my eye, knowing where this guy was in the building for a year. Walking in fear in which nothing ever happened. A lot of us have fears of things that we're facing right now. Some of us have fears of things that are never going to even materialize, but we're concerned about them, and they cause us anxiety. Twenty years earlier, Jacob had deceived his father, and he had deceived and manipulated his brother. And his brother had threatened to kill him when he had a chance. And his mom believed it and sent him off to Badan Aram. Now God has told him to go back home. And he's had some amazing things, hasn't he? He's, he's watched the ladder come down from heaven with the angels ascending and descending. He's seen all these things. He just has finished wrestling with the angel of the Lord. Or for some, some scholars, the pre-incarnate Christ. So he's just had this incredible experience where he's met God and he hasn't what? Died. Remember that? And then he literally crosses the Jabbok River and looks up and here comes Esau with 400 men. And it's like all of that kind of went out the window. So we're looking first, we're looking today at Jacob faces his greatest fear. His brother. First we're going to look at Jacob and Esau finally meeting. We're going to look at what Jacob forgot. And we're going to look at a disastrous detour 
that Jacob makes. In, in the first part of Genesis 33, 1 through 7, we find out that Jacob's coming to meet Esau. Now the question is, why is Jacob in this situation and why is he fearful? Well, he's fearful because he sinned. God had promised before he was born to his mother, Rebecca, that, he, that the older would serve the younger. And yet Jacob chose to take what God had promised in his own method, in his own way. And so he manipulated his brother. Remember the story of the stew and how he got his brother to give away his birthright for his stew. And then he deceives his elderly father who can't see and takes, takes the blessing from his brother. So he sinned greatly. And this is why he's in the situation he's in. He spent 20 years of his life fearing the day he would meet his brother again. I want to briefly talk, point, the first point about the blessings of obedience. There are such rich blessings in obeying God and letting God be God and us responding the way he calls us to respond. The first of those is that we have a clear conscience before God and man. Paul talks about the fact that he has proclaimed the gospel to all men so that he has a clear conscience before God and man. A clear conscience means you can walk through every day not looking over your shoulder or walking in fear of wondering what your sin may produce or what crop may come in. Now, all of us who are drivers of automobiles know that there's times when we're in a hurry and we tend to press the limits of the law. And sometimes we outright break the law. Then we also have those times where we're being fully obedient to the law, we're staying clearly within the speed limit, we're driving along. We know the difference when we see the bright flashing red lights behind us, don't we? We know whether we have a clear conscience or whether we don't. If we are walking in obedience and we see the bright lights flashing behind us, we say, oh, I wonder what poor soul is going to get pulled over today. If, however, we've been pushing the limit, we naturally put our brake on and we start heading for the side of the road. A lot of times we lose sight of the fact of what a clear conscience does. If Jacob had done what was right, this meeting would not have been a problem. He would not have had to been so anxious over it. But because of his sin, he was fearful, even after coming in, out of the presence of the Lord. Second, we have confidence in God. When we're walking in obedience, we know that God, we know that God is going to watch over and take care of us, and we know we're not going to fall into the result of our own sin. Three, we have no fear of harm or destruction because of our sin. Four, we have no guilt or shame. And five, if we're walking in obedience, we allow the Lord to bless us the way he wants to bless us. None of us walk in obedience perfectly. But walking in sin and living a life in which we control every situation by sin 
puts us into a situation where we don't have a clear conscience, where we're anxious when we shouldn't be anxious. When we get a letter in the mail from the IRS, it's almost like, oh my goodness, what, what's going on here? What's the concern? Or your employer says, hey, I need to talk to you in the office. Well, if we're walking in obedience, that meeting should not be a problem, should it? So a clear conscience is huge. Secondly, let's look at Jacob's, uh, what he does to prepare for this. Now, I'll have to admit, as I read different uh, commentators and people who studied this passage, we have people on several sides of the stick here. A lot of people believe that Jacob was, um, that Jacob, this is a wonderful picture of reconciliation, which it is. And it's because Jacob was humble and he was, for, and he was, um, he was providing rest, restitution and he was doing all this. And then there's the other side who said, even though Jacob just came from the presence of God, he's still Jacob. And he's still working things. And I tend, and the thing, I wish, I wish, the, I wish Moses had said, now let me tell you what was really going on in his mind. The scripture doesn't tell us that. So I think we're going to try the best we can from the passage. And, I, you know, obviously, you may come down a different side than I do. But we're going to look at, it, first of all, Jacob's manipulative measures. So as we read this passage, Jacob lifts up his eyes, verse 1, looks out, and behold, there is Esau. And the next word is so. He sees Esau, and what does he do? He goes into his plan. What was his plan? Well, first, if you'll remember, he had already divided up all these different animals he had sent ahead to prepare Esau. He was bringing gifts, sending gifts. And everybody was to say, your servant Jacob gives this gift to you. So he had already sent 500 animals to Esau already. Now he puts his family in order. And this is not a very pretty picture if you're Leah or you're the maidservants. Maidservants and their kids go first. Leah, you and your kids go next. Rachel, whom I love, you're in the back. And he, he lines them up. The scripture tells us the fear of man is a snare. But whoever puts his trust in the Lord is safe. Do we fear men? If we do, it's a snare. If you'll notice, Jacob was concerned about this event before it happened. In Genesis 32:11, we read the following. He's praying to the Lord, and this is what he says. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. That he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. Whatever Esau told him scared him down to his boots. And he fully expected a slaughter of everything that the Lord had been building in his life. Genesis 32:20. He says, uh, the scripture says, the, the narrative says, For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Let's contrast this. He's just been with the angel of the Lord 
in a wrestling match in which he would not give up. He was obviously put in his place by the Lord. Now he faces a man. And he seems to have more fear of the man than he does of God. This is one thing, brothers and sisters, that we need to work at driving out of our lives. A fear of man over God. If we have a fear of man over God, we're never going to carry out what God's asked us to do. We're never going to share the gospel freely with people. We're never going to confront when we need to confront. We're never going to take stands when we need to take stands. Because the fear of man can literally be a snare and debilitate us. This is where Jacob is at. Even though he is the benefactor of all the promises, the birthright and the blessing of the Lord, he is walking in fear. Secondly, when he comes up to Esau, he goes overboard. He is bowing seven times as he comes up to Esau with his face to the ground. Some commentators said he's worshiping God. I don't think so. Again, we don't have a commentary to tell us it, the commentator or the narrator doesn't tell us that. I think he was humbling himself. Instead of trusting God, he was putting all his trust in who? Esau. That Esau would be benevolent toward him. And third, if you'll notice... Once they get together, and we have this great reunion, which is really wonderful, Jacob insists upon him taking everything he's giving him. Why? Just because he wants to be generous? In the ancient culture, if two people were at, at odds or at war, if one person gave a gift and the other accepted it, that was an acknowledgement that now there was peace. Even though we have this wonderful greeting by Esau, he still wants to take that gift he had. He wants to make sure that Esau will receive it, giving him some peace of mind that he's going to be safe. Notice in this account how he works this. So he sends the gifts. He arranges people in order. He comes before his family. He bows down profusely. Every family, every family comes forward and they bow down to, to Esau. And then he drives home this point of wanting them to have the gift. When we face a challenge, we have two choices. We can do it God's way or we can do it our way. May I suggest to you, I think Esau was doing it his way in this scenario. Even though he had all kinds of things to trust in, he was doing it in his own energy. Notice what, let's put, our, put ourselves in Esau's position. Here's Esau. He comes, he meets Jacob, and he sees this incredible blessing. Who are all these people and all this livestock? He gets to see, as all these things have come before his eyes, he has seen the blessing that he let go of. This was the blessing that he despised for his bowl of stew. He sees the family, he sees all the children, he sees all the livestock, and he sees that. I want us to realize that Jacob's prayer was answered. 
that Jacob didn't have to do all the gymnastics he did to face Esau. That the God of the universe had gone before him. And the God of the universe had prepared Esau's heart. A.W. Pink writes this about this passage. Jacob had devoted much thought to the problem of how he could best propitiate the brother whose anger he feared and had gone to much expense and trouble to this end. But it accomplished nothing. It was all labor lost as the sequel shows. God had appeased Esau just as before he had quietened Laban. Remember Laban was after him, chasing after him with 300 men. And God told Laban, don't say a word against Jacob. How much better then had Jacob just been still and trusted in the Lord to act for him? Let us seek grace to learn this important lesson that not only are all our fleshly plannings and efforts dishonoring to God, and that they are quite uncalled for and unnecessary. But also that in the end, God sets them aside as they accomplish nothing. Now, we know this is true regarding salvation. We have hammered this one home, haven't we? Your church attendance, your giving, trying to do good, reading your scriptures, praying, all those things are completely unnecessary if you don't have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter how you want to appease God, only Christ is able to appease God. So if you're here today and you have a plan that's going to allow God to let you into heaven and you're not going to be trusting in Christ for that, may I tell you right now, that's a useless venture. That's a hopeless pursuit. Only through the Lord Jesus Christ will men find peace and forgiveness. There is no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved except the Lord Jesus Christ. What else does Pink tell us here? If we need to pray and trust... And obey God in some way, let's do that. But there's a difference between obeying and doing what God asks us to do and us beginning to come up with a grand plan where we manipulate things in order to accomplish and avoid this great thing we're fearing, whatever it may be. Now, we're going to get a lot of chance to practice this, brothers and sisters. All you have to do is... Update yourself on the news. There is plenty there to put fear into your heart. Especially if your mind takes it and runs a little bit with it. And so we need to be a people that are trusting in God. Prayerfully asking him to work and go before us. And, and then to discover exactly what he wants us to do and for us to do it. I'm not saying in this passage that Jacob, in this passage, Jacob really didn't need to do anything. He just needed to come before Esau with his head up, greet his brother, 
apologized for the way he manipulated him and abused him and presented his family. Instead of bowing seven times as he gets there and all the things that he did. What things are you afraid of today? What situations are you so concerned about today? I would encourage you first to get God's mind on what needs to happen and to pray and ask him to go before you and then to trust him and walk in peace. Jacob didn't have peace. To Jacob's credit, he does give God the glory. When he talks to Esau, he tells him, that this success is from the Lord. In verse 33, chapter 33, verse 5, he says, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Who are these people? The children God has graciously given. And he says, Here, I want you to have all these animals because what? God has dealt graciously with me. Good start to a testimony. Good start to a testimony about God. Before the end of the day, though, the testimony is not real good. Let's quickly think about what biblical steps of reconciliation look like. Okay? There's some pictures here of what this is, depending on what Jacob's attitude was. Okay? First, reconciliation begins with conviction. Conviction comes from who? The Holy Spirit and the Word. So first, there's conviction. We feel our sin um, as we encounter the scriptures and we see our situation. Secondly, the second step in reconciliation is confession. Acknowledging to God that we have sinned against him, that we have walked by sight and not by faith. That we've tried to work a situation, manipulate a situation, walk in a sinful way in a situation instead of trusting him. That should, the next step is repentance, that we're going to turn away from acting this way and move forward. <clears throat> Unfortunately, Jacob doesn't give us a lot of hope here. He is used to manipulating. He is used to deceiving. And it seems from the text that this is what he's done again, that he's done what he's had to do instead of simply trusting in God. So repentance. Number four is to humbly seek the forgiveness of those we've offended. Or, if somebody's offended us, to receive that humbly and give grace. Five, restitution. If we've done something to damage someone's reputation or their property or anything else, our goal is to put it back as best we can the way it was before we came in and messed it up. Now, all of us who are young boys know what it's like to run through the house and be told by our parent, stop running in the house, you're going to break something, and about that time, smash. And we ask for forgiveness, and then we grab the glue, right? And we start trying to put this, this item back together, or we end up having to do what? Buy another one. Okay? So restitution is necessary. We've pretty much lost that in our culture. People can, can take large amounts of money and they are simply acquitted or whatever the situation is. They never have to repay. 
Restitution says we do whatever we have to do to make it right no matter what it costs us. That's restitution. So if I've gone around to ten people and told them what a sorry person this person is, then not only does my apology need to go to them and say, I'm really sorry that I said that horrible thing about you to ten people. That's confession. That's asking forgiveness. But now to make it right, I need to go to those ten people and say, I really sinned against this person by saying things that, number one, were not true, and number two, were not kind, and, were not th- and three, were not necessary. So as we deal with our children, just a little side note here, don't allow them just to ask forgiveness and move on when they leave a trail of a disaster here. So they've been out playing in the yard. They weren't supposed to get out in the mud. They got into the mud. They came through the house and ran through the whole house. When they come up to mommy and say, Mommy, please, please forgive me. I forgive you, sweetie. What's the next step? Time to get the mop and the cleaner and to go back through the house and put things back the way they belong. Sometimes we scramble things so poorly that it never does get put back quite the way it belongs. But our goal in restitution should be to put it back as best we can the way we found it. And finally, after forgiveness has been shared and received from all parties, then there is a reuniting of fellowship and blessing. And I don't know that we see this in this story. We see, we see Esau, and we'll talk about him in just a second and what happens. But in the end, it doesn't seem as if Jacob wants to spend any more time with Esau. He really doesn't want to be around him much more. He's grateful that he's not been killed, but he's not really excited about spending any time with him. Let's look at um, Jacob's, Esau's response. So here's the so. So Jacob's doing all this stuff to get ready for Esau. Then we have the word but. But, in contrast to what he's doing, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. What a beautiful picture of the work of God in a man's life. He didn't get there on his own. The Lord prepared his heart. He ran to meet him. He embraced him. He fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. It almost reminds you of the prodigal son. The father sees the son from far off. The father throws away all dignity and runs to the son, embraces the son, receives the son. This is this this kind of forgiveness is supernatural. The Lord worked in Esau's heart. And notice that Esau didn't just stop there. Esau said, okay, hey, now we're all together. We'll all have a big caravan back to Seir. And Jacob said, well, that's okay, my brother. You know, we we have babies and we have nursing animals and we got to go slow. And then what does he do? These 400 men? Hey, I'm going to lead some of these guys back here. They're going to help you travel this way. We'll get you back down here to where you belong. 
We're so glad, glad to see you. What does Jacob say? Uh, you know, it pop, thank you so much. We're good. Everything's fine. Not a problem here. So Esau says, okay. Esau takes the gift, heads back down south to Seir. Jacob says, I'll see you in a little while. Never happened. Never happened. He should have gone southeast. He went northwest. Direct opposite direction from where Esau went. And we'll talk about that in just a second. So reconciliation is conviction, confession, repentance, forgiveness, restitution, reconciliation. Is there someone you need to get things right with? Do you need to humble yourself and see your sin for what it is? Or do you need to receive the the forgiveness they've asked for? The Bible says if you're going to give a gift to the Lord and you remember at the altar that someone has something against you, leave your gift and do what? Go. Well, what about a situation where I've tried to make things right and they won't receive that? Then as long as you have dealt with it in a biblical way and you've asked their forgiveness and you've done it in humility and you've tried to provide restitution, you're at a point where the Bible says, live at peace with all men as much as it depends on you. Okay? You can't continue to worry about that relationship. You can pray about it, pray that God will eventually restore it, but there's times where people don't want to forgive or they're very upset. And even though you have dealt with your sin and you've confessed it to them, and you've sought to bring this thing back together, sometimes the egg doesn't get put back together. But the key is, have you done what God's asked you to do in that relationship as much as it depends on you? If it is, then you can have a clear conscience. I've gone as far as I can. I really desire for us to have a rebuilt relationship. But I can't take that person and make them become like Esau was. And this is part of reconciliation is what? Is praying that God will help both parties do what? To be able to put it back together. Because reconciliation comes from the Lord. It comes from His hand. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. Secondly, Jacob forgets the presence, the provision, the protection, and the promises of God in the face of his greatest fear. Now we all love to quote the promises and enjoy our time in the word and wonderful, we rejoice, we just came out of Thanksgiving and thanking God for all of his provision and protection and all of a sudden, wham, here comes something at us. What happens to you when it comes? Does all that just kind of go out the window? You just like, you know, like papers blowing out of the car, whoa, where did that go? It seems as if that's what happened with Jacob. It all just left. He had literally wrestled with God the night before, and now, and he recognizes it was God, and now he is in full flight as he faces his brother Esau. First, he forgot God's presence. 
He's forgotten Genesis 28, Jacob's ladder. Remember? Here's Jacob's ladder, and the angels are coming up and down from heaven, and the Lord is standing over the ladder, and the Lord says this. Um, he makes a promise to him that he's going to take care of him and protect him. In Genesis 28:20, 20, Jacob says this. He makes a vow. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way, that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. Notice, even in this, even in this he's at, he said, God, if you can bring me back home to my father's house in what? Peace. Remember what had just happened? He had just fled from Esau. He said, Lord, if you'll, if, you'll, if you'll clothe me and give me food and let me get back home eventually in peace, you'll be my God. And, his, 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 and this vow, part of this vow was, I'm going to eventually go where? Home. He made a vow to God, I'm going to go home. When, I, when you tell me to, I'm going to go home. At Jacob's ladder, God made this promise to him. As he stood over the ladder, he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and in and, and, and the land in which you lie, and I will give it to you and to your descendants. Look at the promises here. This land you're lying on, I'm going to give it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and the east and the north and the south, and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. He completely forgot God's promise. What was God's promise? His offspring were going to spread and take over the land. Newsflash, that doesn't happen when you're completely massacred by your brother Esau. There's no way God's promise and his fear of Esau match. There's no way that that works. He says, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised. So he lost track of the presence of God. He lost track of the promise, promises of God. He forgot about the vow he made to God. He forgot about God's provision and God's protection. He forgot that it wasn't that long ago that Laban was chasing him down with 300 men. And they settled it and got peace and moved on. He forgot that God had given him children and all, the, and all these herds of animals. He forgot God's provision, God's protection. All of that presence, protection, provision, promise, it was all lost. Now, I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but I can't really point the finger at Jacob. Because when certain things come upon me, I can very quickly forget those things. I can forget the Lord being with me promising never to leave me or forsake me. 
I can forget the promises he has made to all of us as believers. How many times is it in our life when God just did something for us and now we're back in fear mode again? Something else is coming on. Jacob says in Genesis 32.10, just before he met the Lord in the wrestling match, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. He's reflecting across the river with my staff by myself. I've come back with 12 children, 11 children, four wives, and an immense amount of livestock and other people. God had blessed him greatly. And so just before this encounter, he had all this in his mind. How quickly we forget God's promise, provision, protection, presence. A pastor once said, Troubles may always be met in the way of the flesh or in the way of the spirit. They may be met in panic or they may be met in the peace of God. Which is it with you? Do you meet trouble with the peace of God or in panic? This really is a test of our faith, brothers and sisters. Our faith is not real strong. We can't tell what our faith is till the troubles come. It's kind of like you have a car battery. You're going to find out real quick how good your car battery is when you go down to 27 degree temperatures. When it gets cold, it's either going to start or it's not. For us, it's hard to tell how strong your faith is and how well connected you are to God until the storm comes and the temperatures drop and fear, the chance to be fearful, comes upon you. And then we find out that a lot of us, our faith fails. Because we're not nearly as connected to God as we thought we were. We're kind of hit and miss in reading the Word. We're kind of hit and miss in prayer. Kind of hit and miss in coming to church. We're kind of hit and miss in being obedient. And we hit and miss in being disciplined in our life. And all of a sudden something hits us and we're like, whoa. And we go into panic mode. We go into panic because why? We're not really that attached to our God. So they may be met in panic or they may be met in the peace of God, which garrisons our heart. God has already told Jacob a long time before that he was going to be with him. And furthermore, that he would accomplish everything in his life and that he was going to accomplish everything. He had the absolute assurance from the very word of God that everything was going to be wonderful so far as the future was concerned, um, so far as the ultimate outcomes of things. But instead of meeting Esau... In the power of the promises of God, he meets Esau in panic and fear and wonder over how Esau will respond. If you'll notice, who's he focused on in Genesis 33? Is his focus on God? No. He's got Esau right in between his eyes. I mean, he, he is zeroed in there. 
And it all depends on how he responds. He lost sight of his God. It's amazing how quickly Jacob goes from the presence of the Lord to facing his greatest fear in the power of the flesh. His dreaded reunion with Esau. We can relate, can't we? Lord, I pray you give me my quota for the month. Praise God, I got my quota for the month. Uh Uh-oh, it's next month. And I've got to get this many, and I only have this many days to do it. What do I do? Lord, I need you to help me meet my quota, or I go into fear mode, or doomsday talk, or whatever the situation is. God provides. He protects. He cares for us. He guides us. Okay, the Lord led me over here. Praise God, I'm here. Oh, he wants me to go somewhere else? Now I become fearful again. But didn't he, wasn't he faithful to bring you from here to here? Amen. I think that's an amen, yeah. And then, but now he wants me to go over here. Well, I haven't been there before. And now the same faith I had to have over here, do I still have it to go to the next place? Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing how the Lord is faithful over and over and again, and we continue to struggle? And we look at the disciples, and we always point the finger at the disciples, right? We're like them, aren't we? Sometimes it doesn't take a whole lot to break our faith. Remember Peter? Standing there the night before his Lord dies. Lord, even if they all leave you, I will be faithful. Hours later, don't know who he is. Moses on the mountain. In the presence of God. God's scratching out the law on the tablets of stone. He's been up there for 40 days, 80 days. That's a mountaintop experience, right? Turns around, comes down, and there's all kinds of chaos going on in the Israeli camp. And he gets angry and what? Throws his tablets down. Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. Here's Peter, James, and John watching this. They're just amazed at this. They're just overwhelmed by it. They come down, and here's the disciples trying to cast a demon out out of some boy, and they can't do it. Jesus said, oh, you have little faith. How about Elijah? Taking on 400 prophets of Baal. He's actually walking, trusting God. Great victory. Then Jezebel gives him a phone call. You're dead meat. Oh my goodness. She's going to kill me. And he becomes completely depressed and fearful. So, now we do have a different example, don't we? We have the Lord Jesus going into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Everybody praising him and just all, they're so excited that the king is here, right? By the end of the week, it's crucify him. Crucify him. What anchors him? What anchors him in from going from the high to the low? Gethsemane. He says to the disciples, pray. Watch and pray. Please pray. And he goes before the Father. If it be your will, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. He's strengthened. He moves forward. 
to do what needs to be done. Luke says he always found time to get away to be with the Father. How are you going to be steadfast in the storms of life? It's not going to be in your strength. It's not going to be in your power. Let's talk about how we keep strong faith as we close. Number one, meditate on God's word day and night. When you're facing the, the giants in your life, those things you're really fearful of, you're going to have to feed on the word like your life depends on it because it does. It will keep you in his presence and it will keep his promises before your face. Second, pray, trusting God to work on your behalf. Is the only time we pray when we're in crisis mode? You're not going to have a tight enough bond to hold on to the storm if that's the case. This has to be something that becomes part of who we are. Take the times when you're at peace to strengthen those, those ties to prayer and to the Lord. Three, remind yourself of God's faithful provision on your behalf. Whatever the situation is, remind yourself of God's faithful provision. Number four, remind yourself of God's faithful protection in your life. All these testimonies from the scripture and your own life, bring them back up. Why? To keep your eyes on who? Christ and Christ alone. And five, as you're reading the word and as you're praying, remind yourself of God's promises on your behalf. If Jacob had just held on to the promise that God promised he'd be with him in everything, that his, that his descendants would expand and cover the land and that he would bring him safely back home, if he had just held on to that promise and believed it, Esau would have become in perspective on what he should have been. Esau was bigger than life because he lost sight of God and his promises. Here's some scriptures that we want to hang on to. If you don't have these memorized, I'd memorize them. Isaiah 41.10, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Don't fear. Don't be dismayed. Why? Because I'm your God. Hezekiah, with the threat of this army, what did he do? He took this petition from this enemy general and laid it before God. And said, Lord, here it is. Here we are. And we're in trouble. And the walls will not keep these people out. And God says, don't worry about it. Take care of that. They won't be here in a couple of days. And this man won't be alive in a couple of days. And he obliterates 185,000 people. That story is for us, friends. We face opposition, and it's going to continue to grow in this culture that we live in. But it's not bigger than our God.
it's not. And we should have peace and confidence and boldness to go beyond our borders, to get outside our comfort zone, and to proclaim the gospel of Christ to people who need to hear that. Please pray for us as a church as we think of ways to do that. I was very encouraged there tonight at the, at the caroling. All the homes that were reached with the gospel of Christ. We can do more. May God give us grace to be open to that. The other verse, Isaiah 26, 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. How do you have peace? <laughs> not looking at Esau. Not looking at the things that you, that you fear. Your peace is having your mind stayed on Christ. That is where peace is. And finally, 17 through 20, where does Jacob go? Who knows where Jacob's going? He's going away from Esau, and he finds himself near Shechem. And it's an unmitigated disaster. So he had just come out of a situation of reconciliation for his manipulation. He manipulates the situation and heads north. Esau could have, he could have at least said to Esau, listen, tell you what, I won't be going all the way to Seir. God wants me to go back to um, Bethel. That's where he wants me to go, back to Bethel. So I'll be glad to go with you part of the way, and then when, you, when, the, when we hit the fork in the road for Seir and, and, and Bethel, I'll take a little right here and head on down to Bethel and have a little fellowship with you and enjoy being with you and have the protection of your men. There was provision there for him. God had softened this man's heart. He lost all that provision, all that protection, and he goes up into Shechem, and Bob's going to tell us all about what happened next week on that. It's awful. It's just like Lot. Remember Lot? Lot pitches his tent towards Sodom. Bad choice. Lot wants to stay in Sodom. Bad choice. The angels bring him out. And they tell him to run to the hills. And Lot goes, I, I can't get to the hills. Well, let me stop over here. Next thing we know, Lot's in the cave with his daughters. I can tell you, Uncle Abraham wasn't that far away. If you remember, Uncle Abraham could look down toward the valley and see the smoke coming up from it. Lot did not avail himself of what God brought his way. And I would submit to you that Jacob didn't either with Esau. What a gracious greeting, a hug and weeping on each other's shoulders. And what's the next response? Uh, I've got to be going. I've got other things to do. Thanks a lot. Sure was great getting reconnected. Really? And Lot, if he had just persevered, he could have got back to Uncle Abraham. Instead, he's in a cave with his daughters. And that was bad news. Bad news. The Bible tells us, no temptation has seized you except what's common to man. But God is faithful, and he'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But with the temptation will provide a way of escape. When we're walking in the flesh, and when we're walking in fear, we go from bad to worse. Worse. 
God, whatever your temptation, whatever your struggle, there is a way of escape. If you want to take it. Esau was at least a partial passage back down to Bethel. And Jacob didn't take it. Abraham was just over the hills for Lot. He didn't take it. If you don't take the way of escape, you will fall. You will fall. And we're going to see next week the horribleness of what happens in Genesis 34. This could have been avoided if he had simply kept his vow to come home to his family. But he didn't. So there's some encouragement here with Jacob and Esau, but there's a challenge, and we can all relate to it. If you need a good psalm to meditate on, Psalm 37, and we'll close with this. One through nine. I won't read the whole psalm. Guess what the first word is? Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and will wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Thank you for this passage in the life of Jacob. And Father, we easily can relate to Jacob. We can be a very fearful people acting as if we don't know a God, much less the God of the universe, much less the one who sent his own son Christ to die for us. And we can quickly lean on our own understanding and come up with our own grand plans of how to rescue ourselves. Oh, Father, may we turn to you first in whatever situation we're in. May we not fret. May we not be fearful. You've not given us the spirit of fear but of power and of love and of self-discipline. Father, I pray that you would grow us as your people, that you would strengthen our faith in Christ, and, Lord, that you would cause us to be a bright light in a dark generation as we hold out the word of life. Father, I pray that we would encourage each other and strengthen each other, and, Lord, that we would all, before your face, enjoy your presence and love your promises, and be thankful for your provision and protection. In Jesus' name.